We're going to continue in John chapter 2. If you'll turn to John chapter 2, we started the first 12 verses of John chapter 2 on Sunday morning and uh, went through that, the wedding in Cana, Jesus changing the water to wine, and we're going to move right on into uh, verse 13 this evening. Um, and it's another passage that I think most everyone will be familiar with, Jesus cleansing the temple, or as I've titled the teaching tonight, Cleaning House. Uh, it's his house, the temple was. It was built for God. And so Jesus going into the temple at this time or into the courts uh, of the temple sees what's going on there, and it's time for a, for a cleaning. Uh, just as a way of introduction, there's the mom who says to her teenage kid, the house is a disaster. We all need to jump in and clean. The teenager said, why? Who's, who's coming over? The mom said, no one. We're going to clean it just for us. And the teenager says, but, but why? We already know we live like this. You know, <laughs> Had to look a long time to find a cleaning house <laughs> humor there. It took me a while, but I found it, you know, so... Uh, so John chapter 2, if you're all there, does anyone need a Bible? Does everyone have a Bible this evening? We want you to be able to follow along. Just raise your hand if you do. We'll get you one. No? Good. John chapter 2, verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons, <clears throat> Lord, that you have for us this evening. Whatever it is that you desire to teach us, Lord, we pray that right now you prepare our hearts and minds for whatever that is. Uh, Lord, each one of us uh, desiring to hear from your Holy Spirit uh, as we go through your word. So, Father, bless our time of study together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So John chapter 2, starting with verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Passover, what is it? Passover. We know from 
Exodus chapter 12, the first 30 verses, gives us all what we really need to know about what we know is, is be called the Passover, as we see it here uh, in our text. It, but it commemorates the last of the ten plagues during the time that Moses was in Egypt, telling Pharaoh to let his people go. This was a plague of judgment of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The Israelites were instructed to kill a Passover lamb, spread the blood of the lamb on the two doorposts and on the lintel of their homes. And then that night, the Lord would pass over any home that had the blood appropriately placed on the doorposts and the lintel. And none of the firstborn in these homes would die by the word of the Lord. So in Exodus 12, the Lord said that day was to be a memorial, an everlasting ordinance to be kept as a feast to the Lord throughout all generations because the Lord's judgment passed over them. And this is why Jesus, a Jew, was going to Jerusalem at this time for the feast of the Passover. We know that Jesus consistently violated the man-made religious traditions, but he obeyed and fulfilled all the laws of God. Following the feast of Passover was the feast of unleavened bread, and that feast lasted seven days. During this time, they were only to eat unleavened bread. And during this feast, the Jews were required to clean their houses of all leaven, leaven being the symbol of sin. So they're to cleanse their houses of sin. And we see in the next verse, verse 14, that is what Jesus does when he cleans his father's house of the evil and the sin within it. So verse 14, he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Business in the temple. What's, what's going on here? What's behind all of this? The selling of oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers. How did all this get started? Well, it probably originated as a convenience for those traveling distances to Jerusalem. Uh, as they would come, and they might even come from uh, a place in the country or out of the country that used a different currency, that maybe traveling that far, they didn't want to bring an oxen or a lamb with them all that way. So this was probably started with good intentions at one time. But it had developed into a money-making machine for the religious leaders. Those that were needing a sacrifice for Passover, they could buy a temple-approved sacrifice at an inflated rate. Those who already had a sacrifice, well, it had to be inspected to see if it was acceptable, and rarely was it. So they would also have to buy a temple-approved sacrifice. I heard one teacher say it wouldn't be far from, or a stretch to think that person brings in their sacrifice, it's inspected, say, no, that's not acceptable. They take it into a pen or an area of the temple, and later on they bring that very one back and sell it <laughs> at a, uh, an inflated price to someone else. So the approved sacrifices of the day, as we saw in our text, were oxen, sheep, and doves. So for those who were poor and could not afford one of these, doves were the alternative. So we see that scene. We see these uh, sacrifices that 
need to be done and how the religious leaders of the day are providing for that, uh, it appears. Uh, then there were the money changers. Taxes were due at this time, and if one didn't have the appropriate currency, it could be exchanged for a fee. And if you didn't have the correct currency for the purchase of a sacrifice, that could be handled as well for a fee. So you can imagine showing up at the temple with no sacrifice and the wrong currency. Man, talk about double dipping. They had it going on here, didn't they? They were ripping the people off. The flocks were certainly being fleeced. So I thought, what would be or what would it look like in a modern day scenario for us this evening? First of all, let's say you came in here tonight for the worship service only to find out that we have divided up the space so that the, uh, the saved set in here, but the unsaved have to set out in the hallway. And let's say that we are scheduled to take communion tonight and you find out that there's now a fee to participate in communion. The drink and the bread are very overpriced, of course, much like a Broncos game, right? Have you ever been to one? Also, you find out upon your arrival that your giving, your tithe, is now mandatory. Has to be done. Then you find out you can't pay for it with your own money. You can't give your tithe or your offering with your own money, for we've instituted a new church currency here at Calvary Chapel. If you just tuned in on, you know, this teaching, you need to go back and listen to what I just said because this would throw you off. <laughs> just occurred to me that that could happen. So, you know, you, you've instituted, we've instituted this new church currency, so you have to exchange your money for this in order to buy and sell here in our church. And to obtain the correct currency, there's obviously an exchange rate, an expensive fee. Now, I am quite sure that if we did that, you wouldn't be here next week, would you? In fact, I would be disappointed if you didn't leave right away, you know. So it was interesting that I came across an article. A friend of mine had sent it to me, actually, a couple weeks ago, and I it just seemed fitting, of, uh, I'll just say a pastor named Terry and his wife Brenda, okay? I'm not going to get into their last name. Uh, but they were found guilty of a $2 million fraud scheme targeting their own church's congregation. This pastor and his wife didn't just rip off their church members through ties or calls for donations or by selling giant buckets of food. They actually conducted a complex Nigerian oil scheme. The prosecution of Brenda and Terry, the former senior pastor of Victorious Life Church, encouraged churchgoers to invest in their company called Micro Enterprise Management Group, which they claimed was a Christian group that helped poor people in developing countries. They recruited investors by emphasizing its Christian mission and the use of the funds to help the poor, promising guaranteed rates of return, assuring investors that the loan's principal was safe and backed by the assets of MEMG, that company. The jury found that these representations were false and fraudulent and that the money was actually used by them to conduct risky trading on the foreign exchange currency market, options trading, payments towards the purchase of a $1.75 million residence for them, among other personal expenses. 
They also falsely assured victim investors that they would get their money back and blamed delays on the 2008 financial crisis. Even worse, once the company failed, the couple created another entity called Kingdom Commodities Unlimited, which they said specialized in brokering Nigerian oil deals. <laughs> and the article goes on and on about all the things that they did, but uh, it's kind of summarized with saying, while critics will say it's not unusual for some religious leaders to con gullible followers into handing over their money to finance their lifestyles, it's not often we see those leaders convicted of a crime. That's usually because those televangelists and megachurch pastors are careful to not go overboard with their promises. They say God will eventually reward them or that the money is helping the ministry in some vague, undefined way. While it would be nice if this conviction put, shall I say, the fear of God in other Christian con artists, it would be even better if those gullible followers realized they were being duped, as the article says. Even one guy said he knew something was going on when he saw Pastor Terry driving around in a $100,000 car. So... I don't think it's unusual. I don't think any of you are shocked or surprised either because we've heard of those types of things, haven't we? But can you imagine how that saddens the Lord? Can you imagine as we look at our text tonight in light of that, wow, that is a church, a temple that needed clean, didn't it? So this temple business that we see in, in our text, who were the only ones who had the perceived authority to do this? Obviously, it was the religious leaders that had charge over all of the affairs of the temple courts. So why would they allow this activity to take place, you might ask? Well, have you guys ever heard the old saying, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps the loudest is the one that got hit? Have you ever heard that? All you got to do is follow the money, don't you? See who gets upset the most when something happens to their, their income here. So this deceit and misuse of the money of the people, we know from uh, our text that it ran straight up to the high priestly office. They were the ones behind the eventual trial and crucifixion of Jesus. They were the ones that were here making money. What started off as a convenience is now a ripoff and they're lining their pockets with all this money. So you might remember a couple of these names. Caiaphas was the high priest at this time, but it, he was only a figurehead. He had the position, but he had no power. His, his father-in-law, Annas, who was the former high priest, was the power behind this position. So Annas had participated, more than likely, in this money-making scheme in the temple, and now his son-in-law would continue it while in office. It reminded me of another place we're all familiar with, unnamed, but it starts with W and ends in D.C. You might be able to figure that out. So where was this taking place? It was happening in the outer court of the temple. As far as the Gentiles in that day could go without penalty, you had the outer court, which was the court of the Gentiles, you had an inner court, which was the court of the Israelites, which was for men and women both. And then you have the court of men, which only Jewish men could go into. And so it was very much 
set up in such a way that these Gentiles could only go so far. And where do you think that they were, they had their money changers tables set up and all the uh, sacrifices uh, that you could purchase? It was in that outer courts. They were looked down upon, the Gentiles were, and they were being taken advantage of in a big way. So in the very place, think about this, in the very place where witnessing could happen, to share about God, greed and deception was running rampant in the very place that they could witness to him. Unfortunately, it's still a tactic used in some religious organizations today, as we saw from that article. So the only place set aside for the Gentiles to worship even had been turned into a, a shopping mall of sorts, right? A, a, a Black Friday, Friday type event on Passover. So that which had been set aside as a place for worship and praise was now drowned out by bawling of auction, the bleeding of sheep, the cooing of doves, and this loud haggling back and forth between vendors and their customers. Well, verse 15, Jesus arrives on the scene, and when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. So a whip of cords, plural. How many? We, we don't know for sure. You might think, well, it really doesn't matter, does it? Well, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4, verse 12 says, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We know that. We've probably all heard that verse. But three cords in that particular verse, and you've probably heard that passage used even in weddings, right? Uh, three cords, the bride, the groom, and Jesus. Very appropriate. Three cords woven together for a specific purpose. In this case, driving out sin. And I think maybe that it was three cords to represent the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three in unity, cleaning out the temple. Maybe, maybe not, just a thought. But chronologically in the Gospels, this cleansing of the temple was the first time. That the cleansing of the temple actually happened a couple times. Uh, as it turns out, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, all towards the end of Jesus' ministry. This is at the beginning, the one that we're looking at in our text tonight. So Jesus cleanses the temple at the beginning of his earthly ministry and also at the end of his earthly ministry. Why? It needed cleaned, didn't it? I'm sure that after Jesus left and they went right back to their practice and just continued with that. Uh, and each time, obviously, that he cleaned the temple, upset the religious leaders more and more. We can even see this cleansing of the temple as a commentary on Malachi chapter 3. So hold your place in John and turn over to Malachi chapter 3 real quick. Or if you're Italian, Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, which also happens to be the last book in the Old Testament. Turn to the left till you get to Malachi. It's the old stall tactic that all pastors use till pages quit turning, you know. We just keep talking. I do that whether you're turning your pages or not. But Malachi chapter 3. Verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. So notice in that text, he will suddenly come to his temple. Jesus coming into the temple, as we see in our text. He's like launderer's soap. He's cleaning things, isn't he? He's cleaning it out. And he will purify the sons of Levi. The hope there, obviously, is that the religious leaders of the day would see what they're doing and realize how wrong that is. But back to our text in verse 15. So he made this whip of cords. And one thing we don't know, we don't have the information for us here in the book of John, uh, is, you know, did he sit down and put this whip of cords together? Was it something like changing the water into wine? You know, whip of cords. Either one is reasonable. He could have done either one, but I really believe he took the time to weave a whip of cords together. That's just me. Uh, but we, what we do know is that Jesus didn't act spontaneously with this as God walking up to the temple before he ever got to the temple. Maybe while he was at the wedding of Cana, he knew it was going on already, didn't he? He knew this was happening. So what we see in our text as well is that he didn't go off into a fit of uncontrolled rage. What Jesus shows us in his example for us in this is what we would refer to as righteous anger. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin. Well, that's a really good question for us, isn't it? Can you, can I get angry and still represent God effectively? Unfortunately, most of the time, no, we don't, do we? When we're angry, we're angry. <laughs> So this ripoff market in the court of the Gentiles was a sin against who? It was a sin against God, wasn't it? God himself. And Jesus is God, so uh, it's close to home. That which God had set forth as an ordinance in the Passover to be kept for all generations. We looked at that, the shed blood of a lamb, so that judgment would pass over. The cleaning out of leaven, sin, the very thing that Christ himself came to do, Passover now being marketed for profit by the ones who saw themselves as holy. Yeah, Jesus is angry, but he's still not sinning. He's representing God accurately with holy, righteous anger, doing the will of God. Now we, we've got to be very careful at attempting this, don't we? We struggle with that verse, be angry and do not sin. It's a fine line there, isn't it? So our caution is that in our anger, we must make sure we are accurately representing God. Just a check in our spirit before we lash out, checking God is what I'm about to say is what I'm about to do representing you. It's very difficult for us to be angry and not sin. It's very difficult. Saw another character from the Bible, Moses. Remember, 
God commanded Moses to speak to the rock to provide water for the Israelites. It's very clear. He commanded Moses to speak to the rock. But out of his frustration with the people, Moses struck the rock in anger and misrepresented God. God wasn't angry at his people. They wanted water. He wanted to give them water. So we can see that even in Moses. Very difficult. Verse 16. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, it's just me, but I'm thinking that they probably also had for sale approved Passover hats and buttons and T-shirts, you know, to go along with that. Just whatever way they could to make money, right? Maybe the merchandise was made available by official sponsors of the Passover. But this wasn't just a mishandling of temple funds. It was intentionally lining the pockets of those behind it. But imagine the scene. I was thinking about this. You, you see all of this, but if you try to put yourself in the court of the Gentiles and watching all this unfold, Jesus' display of force would have immediately created pandemonium in the temple court, wouldn't it? The animal sellers frantically chasing their beasts which were running aimlessly around in all directions, startled money changers, and no doubt some of the bystanders, scrambling to, on the ground to pick up coins, those who were selling the doves hastily removing their crates as Jesus had commanded them, the temple authorities rushing out to see what all the commotion was about, what's going on. Apparently, the uproar he created was contained enough to not alert the Roman garrison stationed at the Antonio Fortress, which overlooked the temple grounds. But maybe, maybe not. I kind of think that the watching Romans may have found some satisfaction in this assault at the temple. You know, the, these leaders, these religious leaders had given them so much grief over time that they would have probably found it entertaining to some degree. Well, verse 17, then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. We know in Psalm 69.9, which is quoted here in this verse, uh, because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Like David who penned the Messianic Psalm there that we just read, Jesus' zeal for pure worship found expression in his concern for God's house. He didn't like what was going on there at all, did he? And also like David, Jesus suffered as a result, personally feeling the pain when his father was being dishonored. Well, the second half of that Psalm reads, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. These Jewish leaders never forgot Jesus' assault on the heart of their religious enterprise, the very seat of their power. In fact, in Christ's two physical cleanings of the temple, along with his constant verbal assaults on their hypocrisy, it was just more than enough motivation for them to pursue his crucifixion. Well, verse 18, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? So they were looking for a sign of his authority. What gives him the authority to do this? What gives him the right? What is his credentials? Who are you? I actually had that kind of come up 
uh, when I planted the church down in Berthoud. There was a person there in town that uh, caught me after a Sunday morning service and said, you know, what are your credentials? And I just kind of chuckled at the time because I, th I thought they were joking, but they were serious. So I told him, well, I got a two-year degree from uh, a community college in engineering technology. I, and I was just going to wait for a response from them. They didn't really respond. <laughs> I guess they were in shock. I don't know. <laughs> well, who am I? Who are you? What are our credentials for ministry? We're called and chosen by God, are we not? Saved by him for the purpose of him using us for his glory. What right do I have to be the pastor? You might be pondering the very thing right now. I don't know. But I'm acting on a calling. We all are. So these religious leaders wanted to know why Jesus was in the middle of their business. And we know. What did he tell his mother Mary at the wedding in Cana? He's about his father's business, isn't he? He's being directed by his father. He never did anything that the father didn't instruct him to do. Well, in verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. This temple, this magnificent structure had taken 46 years to build and it still wasn't completely finished at that time. And it was the center of Jewish religious activity. It was the pride of the Jews, something to behold. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. We know Jesus is speaking here prophetically of his crucifixion and resurrection. He was speaking of the temple of his body. This is the very phrase used against him by the two false witnesses in his trial. You see that in Matthew 26. His, his body, the temple, his body, the tabernacle. Remember, we looked at the verse on Sunday morning. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became flesh and tabernacled among us. Tabernacle, temple, the dwelling place of God. Jesus incarnate. God's dwelling place. God with skin on. He says, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it. Well, they didn't get it. Obviously, they were confused. You're going to tear down what? Well, I mean, they're just in shock. They can't believe what he's saying. The center of our religious activity took 46 years to build. Well, obviously, there was too much focus on a building and not enough focus on the Lord. Amen? Some places today, it's still a problem. Verse 22, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, this doesn't happen, this remembering, until after they receive the Holy Spirit, and then, then they understand. We know that from John chapter 14, verse 26, when Jesus says to his disciples, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. That verse, Jesus speaking to his disciples in that, but it has great meaning, great depth for us as well, doesn't it? As he says, the Holy Spirit will teach you. 
and bring to you remembrance all things that I said to you. Have you ever had those times when you're sharing with someone or talking with someone and a verse of scripture just kind of pops into your head from, it seems like nowhere. I mean, it's like sometimes you're shocked. I didn't even know I knew that, but there it is. The Holy Spirit working in your life to bring to your remembrance all things that Jesus has said to us in his word. It's just a fantastic thing when that happens. Well, verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So we read that verse, and one of the first things we should think is, well, what signs? This text tells us that he cleaned the temple, right? But many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. What signs? We know from John chapter 3, verse 2, and Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In the next chapter, he meets with Nicodemus, doesn't he? What are these signs? We don't know what they are. We don't have these particular signs spelled out or documented for us here, but keep in mind what John writes later on in John chapter 20, verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So Jesus did many signs. Some of them we have documented for us. Some of them we don't. Uh, and that's okay. We can trust that if he can do the ones that we do have documented for us, he can do anything, right? He's Jesus. So Jesus did signs that impressed all those who witnessed him and they believed in his name which leads him then to these last two verses. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So Jesus, as God, he was the creator of man. So he knew man. He knew woman. He just knows us, doesn't he? They believed in his signs rather than in him. Do you remember when he fed the 5,000? What did they want to do? They wanted to take him and make him king, didn't they? This would be great. We got a king that's going to give us free food. Maybe it was the first sign of socialism. I don't know. Anyway, they believed in his signs rather than in him. He knew that man had a sin problem, a problem in which he was the solution. Jesus knew, Jesus knows what's in man, what's in woman. He knows us. He saw it in the religious leaders conducting, conducting their business in the temple. It needed cleaning out, and he did just that. So as we close tonight, I want you to think about this. We know from Scripture that our bodies are a holy habitation for the Lord. Our bodies are a temple for the Lord to dwell in. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So none of us would argue, none of us would disagree that the temple needed cleaning out, didn't it? Because of what was taking place there. It was not honoring God. It was not effectively representing God. 
And we also know that Jesus knows us. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows what's in the temple of our bodies. And he desires, as we have come to know him, as we have turned our lives over to the Lord, he desires to do a regular cleaning in us as well. Cleaning out those things in our lives that are not God-honoring. Those things in our lives that misrepresent God, whatever they might be. And it's what we know the word sanctification is all about. Salvation is an event that took place in our life that we can point to at a point in time. And sanctification is a process continually sanctifying us according to his will. So in that sanctification then, it's obvious that there needs to be some cleaning from time to time. I don't know what that is. None of us know what that is in each other. It would scare us probably if we knew in some cases but whatever that is, God knows, and he wants to do that cleaning in our lives as well. Ask yourself, doing an honest assessment of yourself tonight, is there something that he needs to drive out in your life? Is there something that God wants to drive out of your life uh, tonight as you're here? As the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, revealing to you the purpose and the plans of God for your life and that he wants to cleanse those things that are in your life so that you better represent him and that you able to draw closer to him as well. So as we close in prayer tonight, I just encourage you to seek the Lord, search your heart, see what that might be that you can just lay before the Lord tonight. As, as Travis comes up and leads us again in that new song that you did, Travis, just seek the Lord and, and ask him what he would have you lay before him and surrender to him uh, from your heart tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that uh, we have this opportunity to just come before you uh, with open hearts and minds, Lord, desiring for you to speak to us. And Lord, we'll provide opportunity at the end of the service for anyone that wants to come up for prayer, that we can pray with you and pray for you through uh, whatever it is that's heavy on your heart. And so, Lord, we ask as we close in this song, Lord, that you would just speak to us in Jesus' name.